I've been really looking forward to speaking to my next guest, the illustrator and author of a new book called The Book of Trespass, which was uh, published earlier this year. Uh, somebody who I followed for a while as an illustrator, whose work I very much admired from afar, and who I would have loved to have been speaking to in person today, where he is currently based on a, uh, a houseboat on the River Avon, but uh, lockdown put paid to that. Uh, we were supposed to be outside roasting sausages, weren't we, Nick? Could have been anything. Possibly even uh, crayfish, because we've been catching a few of those. Uh, the signal American crayfish, for anyone that knows about it, because uh, those are the ones that you can legally catch, uh, because they're an invasive species and they're huge and they're very tasty. So we could have had some of them. We've just put the net in uh, this morning. Well, as I said on the phone, you know, I, I think next year we should absolutely make this happen. Hopefully we'll be in a better place in 2021. Part of what drew me to this book, aside from the fact that I was already a fan of your work, was this this anger, I suppose, that hit me quite suddenly when the learning of this proposal to criminalise trespass collided in my mind with the fact that we are currently living in a country whose government is preparing to withdraw from the European Union in the name of sovereignty, right? Something which is supposed to represent both national and local self-determination, among other things, and that that same government is also seeking, at the same time, to criminalise its own people's freedom of movement within its own borders. That's not even to mention how restricted our movement is already, which we'll get onto. So I, I thought I'd start by asking where all this began for you, the campaign, the idea for the book, which does a really good job of plunging us into the history and philosophy of trespassing. But from a personal anecdotal level, where did this all start for you? Well, I guess there's two stages. When I first started seeing trespass and keep out and private property signs, as what I now see them clearly to be as kind of uh, man-made spells that kind of charge the land with exclusion. That was when I was about uh, 27 and I was walking with my mum, just trying to find, show her a place where at that point was the only time I'd ever seen a flash of a kingfisher. And I thought, this is a magic place, mum. You've got to come and see this. This was back where, uh, back where I grew up and I just took her out for a pub lunch and off we went. And we had to uh, cut along the verges of a couple of fields and uh, just some old boy on a quad bike uh, came rattling over to us and uh, used the kind of language that I wouldn't even admit to my mum that I knew. And it was just so downright rude and, and so dis totally disproportionate to kind of the gentle act that we were doing. But that, I guess... I was used to that because I grew up in the country, but what, what sort of surprised me or sort of um, led me further into it uh, was just how instantly acquiescent me and my mum were. We, were. we bowed our heads, we apologised, sort of taking his word for it that we were doing something wrong, and then we buggered off. And uh, I, I guess as I was walking home, I kind of thought, well, why and how and what's that power that we were just so that we kind of it almost he by saying this is private property, he almost flicked a switch in us that kind of turned us from like free willed individuals into subservient mendicants to some, you know, to something that we didn't really understand. Like, what is the history of private property? Who put that wall there in the first place? And so essentially that got me started. And then. I think about five years ago, I was on the train uh, home from Brighton and it was really packed. It was a Friday night. So I went to sit in the first class, which was empty, except for a rather well-to-do couple in evening wear. And uh, they said something very snooty to me 
And I said, well, there's literally no space. Everyone's standing up and you can't even get an elbows room in second class. So I've come to sit where there's loads of space. Makes sense. And they called the guard and they were very rude. And as, as I've basically got booted out, I kind of thought, wow, this is such a perfect analogy for land and land rights in England. There, are, there is an elite set of people that uh, can afford to have vast swathes of space for their own exclusive pleasure. And yet the rest of the proles are kind of crammed into, in terms of land rights, you'd call them honey spots or national parks or uh, rights of way. And it just, I just thought, damn, this is so misanthropic. This is so, so closed door, so not open hearted at all. And I guess that was the time that I thought, right, well, I guess because I was ashamed, really, or I was shamed by them. I thought, right, I'm going to bloody do a book. <laughs> and this allusion you make to the spell that's cast, the spell that shames, the spell that excludes, I believe this was the original title of the book, was it not? The Spellbound Land. Tell us, if you could take us through the history, who first cast the spell? So it's probably inaccurate to uh, to try and like lay the blame at one person's door, because fundamentally, uh, a few people kind of kicked it off, and then it was a, a matter of self-interest and, I guess power that enabled people to kind of buttress what had been started but but yeah most land rights activists will put it all on the shoulders of William the Conqueror who came over and kind of um, created forests I like having basically uh, slaughtered as as much of the north as possible and uh, salted their fields and burnt their barns and made it uh, impossible for them to live autonomous lives he then created forests which the etymology of forest has nothing to do with uh, trees or a kind of description of the landscape or um, or geology. It's It's got to do with Latin law and forests means outside of. And these places that he'd created that were built within or, or kind of that had palisades and fences built around them with this new concept in England at the time, which was essentially something to keep out the commoners that once held rights there. Uh, he did that because he wanted to breed deer, either for venison, for you know, for butchery, but but mainly for hunting because that was kind of war practice back in the day. But these forests were outside of common law, uh, which was a totally new creation in England at the time, and basically meant that the rights and responsibilities that the local working class people. Uh, that lived in the area they would be allowed certain rights they'd be allowed to take winter fuel they'd be you know whatever they could find that had fallen down in terms of wood from the trees they'd be allowed to feed their cattle their pigs um, but they would also owe uh, a responsibility of care to this land as well and all of that was suddenly cut off but then I guess what I try and do with the book is kind of show how the uh, enclosure of land and the kind of total dominion that is granted to the landowner also bleeds into and kind of orchestrates other areas of society such as race and gender. And certainly when William the Conqueror came over and said that all of a sudden land could be the property, exclusive uh, property uh, and under total dominion of one person, he also brought over the same concept in terms of uh, men's relationships with their wives and brought over the French idea of femme couvert, which was this sense that when a woman was married, the, the ownership of her body moved from her father's possession onto her husband's. And the woman was at all points covered, is how they called it, but just 
she was no longer able to sign her own documents. She was no longer able to own property, all of which was perfectly viable and, you know, completely common in Anglo-Saxon times. So I guess the book was me trying to explore how the notion of property kind of expands into society and how we treat each other as well. You mentioned also that land ownership was also a condition at one point for parliamentary membership. It's a wonderful book that I'm still making my way through. It's quite a big book, beautifully illustrated and beautifully written as well. What is the state of land access or lack thereof among the public because of these arcane laws that have just developed in various forms to decide who does and who doesn't belong to ever-growing swathes of the country in which we live? Well, these days, I think, um, like, we don't, we don't, it's, it's not very common for people to use their access for land to go hunting for a hare or a partridge. Uh, you know, we, we get our food from supermarkets and uh, by and large, we get our winter fuel uh, from the radiators, basically. It's whether we can afford to pay it. But the kind of these are kind of called perquisites in, in land, uh, in, in property terminology, like the, the added extras to owning the land. I own an area of space. And the perquisites of that are the kind of hunting rights or the fishing rights or the uh, the ability to farm and forest the wood uh, and all of this kind of thing. We as commoners or just your regular uh, uh, person don't really need the land for that, uh, for those specific old uh, pre-enclosure rights that we had. But actually we're learning now and science is providing, you know, just a bank of empirical evidence uh, that what we do need nature for is our physical and our mental health. You know, the link to uh, improvements in mood, diminishing of stress, like the alleviation of depression and uh, ways of treating obesity and heart disease are all autonomous exercise in, uh, um, in natural environments. And so actually, no one's really making the link between uh, the crises that we're facing with, in terms of heart disease, uh, pulmonary disease, the, uh, you know, obesity. No one's linking that actually with the fact that we don't have rights to access the land that is on our doorstep. Uh, there was in the year 2000, uh, uh, the Labour government uh, introduced the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, which opened up 8% of uh, English land to uh, the right to roam to, you know, that was basically mountains, moors, heathland and downland. Uh, but for those people that don't, you know, aren't lucky enough to live, say, in the Peak District or, um, or the lakes, uh, actually the Countryside and Rights of Way Act did nothing to, um, to give them the right to uh, the kind of mental and physical health that, uh, that we so desperately need. Uh, so the campaign that we're running at the moment is, is saying, well, we need to extend the Crow Act, as it's called, um, to rivers, to Greenbelt and to woodland, because all the science that tells us we need nature basically also tells us that we need it as a regular part of our life. It needs to be part of our weekly cycle. And with areas of land open to right to roam uh, being so far away and so remote from so, for so many people, what we nearly really need to do is bring the Countryside and Rights of Way Act to people's doorsteps. 
And especially coming out of this pandemic, the last thing we need is a law that bans us from walking at ease and in the spirit of adventure. I mean, I, I don't think I'm making any secret of this. I find myself in, in full agreement and support of everything that the Right to Roam campaign stands for, and uh, I'll be cheering you on the whole way. But the Labour Party, it seems, has done more than any other to really remedy this. I mean, I think going back even as far as the Clement Attlee government, you had this idea of the Right to Roam, didn't you? This idea of a natural health service. And where this issue overlaps with class in this country, as it does quite distinctly, it's quite a miserable facet of our discourse on things like public access to to natural land in this country that so much of the debate seems to get demeaned by allusions to middle class indulgences versus what people term the concerns of ordinary working people. Have you had any challenges thrown at you in that way? That's a really interesting question. Um the, the, the usual response that whenever we bring up increasing public access to the countryside, uh, you know, the angry Twitterati will uh, will sort of, they'll come back at us with, uh, well, do you want me walking through your back garden? As if they've just dropped the mic and won the point kind of thing. Uh, and then obviously each time we very uh, carefully explain to them that the right to roam as it exists across Europe in Scotland, Estonia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, um, has at the heart of it the protection of private property and that all we're looking for uh, is is basically to highlight the issue of scale. Uh, no one wants someone walking through their back garden um, because we all have a, a, it's a human right to, to privacy. Uh, however, when the Duke of Buccleuch, uh, you know, for example, owns uh, 120,000 acres in England alone, um, then we we need to start questioning whether one man has the exclusive right of access uh, to all of those acres over the public that so badly need it. Um, but your question was more about class. Uh, and you're right, I am a, a sort of middle-class dilettante. You know, I went to university, uh, I did my uh, learning, and I, I made a decision uh, to write a book because I basically because I could. Um, rambling used to be a really working class. It was the socialist ramblers uh, movement that uh, Benny Rothman and the um, Kinder Trespass all came from. Rambling now or wild camping, and I, I deal with this in one of the chapters, the hair chapter in the book, has if you walk into a kind of a, a blacks or a, you know an outward bound shop, you will generally see lots of perfect toothed, uh, smiling white people with children uh, advertising what you should do in the countryside. Uh, and one of the things that the book tries to ex- sort of express is that there's a million different things that people should be allowed to do in the countryside because not all of us like a, a gentle stroll. There, there, there needs to be more than that. Uh, paddleboarding or kayaking or wild swimming is a good example. But in terms of class and in terms of like questions, it was actually members of the traveling community that uh, got in touch with me to express their concern. They generally they liked the book, like uh, they were they were pro it, but they they were afraid that that a book like this might be seen to be encouraging people to trespass, uh, which would inevitably like end up on their doorstep as a problem. The Castle Morton Rave in 
1992, I think it was, is a good example where people pick up the lifestyle of the traveling community because it seems exotic or romantic. And actually, the police then uh, come down twice as hard on the people for whom that is their way of life. But hopefully with with our, I mean, we got 130,000 signatures to try and stop the criminalization of trespass, uh, which is an act that is almost almost to the point of breaking uh, the European Convention of Human Rights targeting the traveling community and by criminalizing trespass uh, with intent to reside it's it's not just uh, enabling the police to arrest travelers for being on land that they don't own but it's also enabling them to impound their vehicles so like we've been working very closely with friends families and travelers and you know individual members of the traveling community and hopefully we can be judged by our actions but uh, i have to hold my hands up i am middle class and uh, uh, so I'm probably a champagne. Does that make me a champagne socialist? The reason I asked is because I thought, you know, I bet one of the hardest things about running a campaign like this is having to justify why you're doing it. If it sounds like you're talking for the bohemians rather than for the majority, which is not what this book is about. It's about just existing in nature. It is really. And it, it, it's more it's more so with the campaign that we've uh, had to consider this because, uh, you know, the campaign is talking about the rights of uh, people of colour to uh, basically just feel welcome in the countryside. And fundamentally, the only way that you can create a forceful campaign and a campaign that actually resonates with people is by inviting uh, people from those demographics to take the lead. Like me and Guy, Guy Shrubsoul, who wrote Who Owns England, just basically the only other, my buddy on the campaign, and the rest of the people we've we've reached out and we've reached out to various campaigning groups and various uh, representatives of the different demographics that we're trying to reach out to. That's not just along class or race. We want to talk to mums and dads. We want to talk to mums and dads about their children having the right to, uh, you know, educate themselves through exploring, you know, being able to like lift up an old tree trunk and uh, see the stag beetles rummaging underneath it. For, for each of those areas of the campaigns, we, we will be asking, you know, for, for example, that thing, the mums and dads to d- design the campaign. It's not really for us to talk to people uh, or talk for people whose lifestyles we, we, we haven't experienced. Let's talk a bit more about how the the traveling community has been used to rally the country around laws that, that bar public access to the countryside. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the position I try and explain in the book is that uh, traditionally the traveling community has been used as a kind of full guy or, or scapegoat in order for centralized power to tighten the restrictions on every single other person in England. And this is, you know, I, I try and actually set the, the history of the traveling community alongside the history of vagrancy. And they were called masterless men after the uh, Black Death. People that were itinerant workers who uh, actually made their living, you know, basically traveling from one place to another, either shearing sheep or, you know, uh, collecting in the harvest or tinkers, you know, mending pots and pans and stuff. As soon as the Black Death had sort of ravaged Europe, there was a huge demand for workforce, uh, which of course meant that the working class people across Europe were able to effectively pick and choose where they went for the the highest wage. This sent the you know the establishment, the the king, and uh, you know the sort of state into freefall. They did like there there was suddenly this huge sway of power to uh, the people. 
and so all of a sudden the, the way that they clamped down on it was to um to just basically raise the punishment for wandering for walking for vagrancy is what they called it and there were some brutal you know at times people could be enslaved in england as a result of being caught being vagrants really yeah or they had like holes bored through their ears or vagabond v for vagabond like branded on their chest you know there was a real tudor style fascination with uh, the body in that and they were they were also seeing that feeds into what people call the body politic as well like travelers sort of slotted into an already existing fear of the power of mobility and when you know the roma travelers came from rajasthan coming across europe a you know, maybe the 1400s, maybe a bit earlier kind of thing. When they landed in England, they were just the ultimate scapegoat. There was this real fear of the actual person in motion, that the person could actually move out and, and find a better deal somewhere else. That wasn't the way that the, you know, the centralized state wanted wanted people to think. It wanted people to feel like they were beholden, like feudalism, to the to the place that they where their boss was and if they paid a bad rate then that was your lot they didn't want people that sense of autonomy have you considered approaching one tyson fury as a supporter for this campaign um i would love to speak to tyson fury but i think he uh would probably act as more of a divisive character like some of the uh, some of the other comments he's said, there's people that are more uh, um, suitable. But to be honest, we haven't actually we we've got the signatures that we need to create a, a debate in Parliament. Although various other petitions have been ignored by the current Parliament, so we'll have to see about that. Uh, but we were just waiting. The bulls in the government's court at the moment, and um, yeah, I mean we'll consider every option. But I don't know if Tyson Fury uh, might lose us more followers than we gained, to be honest. Earlier in the year, there was an article published by The Guardian that uh, did a survey of visitors to the Lake District, less than 15% of whom said they were aware that they should follow the countryside code available to everybody online. If anyone were to consult it and find that it told them not to litter, I doubt that would be news to any of them. But there has been this huge rise in littering in the countryside over the last few months. I mean, this is the crucial question, basically. We realised very early on that if we were going to take one step towards a right to roam, the next step had to be explaining what we were going to do about the litter problem. Uh, so the last, uh, the last nine months, we've actually been consulting a load of uh, different uh, areas, different expertises. Um, and ah, without giving it away, we do think we have uh, come to uh, what we consider to be quite a strong solution. But the point is that it, the solution is not new. It's the oldest. It's pre-enclosure. It's this idea of the commons, that with rights come conjoined responsibilities. Um, it was Guy that, uh, Guy Shrubsole that FOI'd the government to find out just exactly how much they did spend on publicising the, uh, the, uh, the countryside code. Uh, and it turned out uh, it was £2,000 a year which in loose talk is just bugger all. They're not publicizing the countryside code. The countryside code used to be taught in schools. Now children barely have a, you know, barely have a lived experience of nature, let alone if they, if they were to taught the, teach the countryside code, to what end? Like uh, in some ways you can understand why it's fallen by the wayside. What we're trying to do is create an architecture where uh, 
where we don't expect the moral absolutism, the, the purity of everyone picking up their own litter, uh, that we don't rest the whole right to roam on everybody exercising their moral responsibility. Instead, what we're looking to do uh, is to ask the people that already have a deep relationship with the countryside, uh, that already go around and pick up litter, essentially to take the weight for, for the people that actually, there will always be some that you can't uh, persuade or you can't, uh, you can't sort of persuade of the importance of it. Uh, I think lockdown proved to us basically every every story of lockdown litter. There was a disposable barbecue, a disposable pet tent, uh, a load of tinnies, uh, spliff butts, and uh, nitrous oxide gas canisters. Like to me, uh, having lived in Old Street, uh, that that's basically Old Street on a Friday night. This was the pub and club group whose pubs and clubs were shut that were just taking their need to uh, you know get high basically to another venue and they chose the countryside because that's where you know well historically that's where those things have happened uh, for hundreds of years the problem is i don't think that i can ever look a landowner in the eye and say if if there is a right to roam across your land i guarantee you that there you will never see a lucasade bottle or a red bull can littering your hedgerows but what i think we can do is arrange based on any number of already existing volunteer schemes. There's uh, trash-free trails is a really good example. British canoeing have about 70 litter-picking schemes. Surfers Against Sewage. All of these are organizations that have been set up effectively by the commoner, like by no, for, they're not-for-profit organizations that not only work to clear the countryside of litter, but are also discovering and, and, and sort of using the science and, and the evidence that proves that the actual act of pick, picking up litter enables people to feel, A, that they're doing something for the environment in a situation of climate change, which has almost got a nihilism to it, that it's just so enormous, what the hell can you do? But also it's been, picking up litter has been proven to improve people's mental health, but also their cohesiveness, their, their sense of community with their neighbours and with the people that they do it with. So, so really, I think our, our plan to introduce the right to roam would also be an opportunity for the government to support on a much wider scale schemes like Trash Free Trails. And by doing that, actually engender a closer connection with the countryside, which long term would mean that people would be much less likely to not care where they discarded their litter. We're still barred from 92% of the land, 97% of the waterways. And those are, of course, the two sort of standout statistics. So how far along is the government's agenda to criminalise trespass? How much time do we have to stop this? Well, in terms of how urgent it is, uh, we really don't know. They've been, they've been sort of howling for this since 2010 when there was a letter from about signed by about 30 uh, conservative mps it's it's one of those shore up the baselines it's like uh, it's uh, you know don't deal with the systemic problem fundamentally the, the real problem with or issue with the traveling camps is that austerity has just caused the councils to shut down all of the legal camps that were provided. So first of all, the Conservative government has removed legal places for travelling communities to stay. And now it's uh, aiming to criminalise them for being anywhere else. So they, they really are. I mean, 
it's bullying in a in a bog standard way but then obviously that ties quite nicely in with the uh, pretty patel scenario so as soon as we realized pretty patel was in in charge of all of this we did kind of think right bloody hell this is going to happen then but obviously the conservative government is is it's it's made of wet tissue paper at the moment like it is <laughs> falling to pieces and so i i don't know covid has certainly stalled it but also i just think on the inside i just don't know i don't know if there's the infrastructure anymore to try and to actually start pushing through some of their agendas but i think things will start warming up again when there's a, a vaccine for covid but in terms of the other side of it what we're planning to do we have a website the website is called righttorome.org.uk and the current first phase is to just try and reach as many people as possible so if people are listening to this if they could sign up to righttorome.org.uk that would be the first step the second step will be to uh, go on targeted trespasses and we want to invite botanists along to tell us you know the kind of flora and fauna that we're missing we want to invite poets and um, folk musicians along to kind of, you know, remind us of older connections to land that, again, we've been missing. And we want them to be very English and very eccentric and very quirky and very gentle because, you know, there's nothing like whimsy to terrify the uh, centralised power. We want to hear everyone's stories because I think we've got another four years until anything is likely to budge. So we do have a bit of time. This is an absolutely essential campaign. How did you find the experience of writing a non-fiction book for the first time? Crushing. <laughs> Bloody hell, like doing graphic novels is easy. You just put on, uh, you know, Amazon audiobook and uh, and <laughs> and just draw. But with a with a actual book, you've got to concentrate for every word. Uh, I found it really heavy. Yeah, well, as I say, crushing though it was to write, it's an absolute pleasure to read. And and though nonfiction weaves in an awful amount of very mellifluous prose, beautiful metaphor, wonderful storytelling. Uh, as for the campaign, can't wait to see where it goes next. And uh, I look forward, hopefully, to roasting those sausages with you in the future. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jack. And uh, it was a real pleasure. Yeah, we'll meet up in real life if there is such a thing. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Nick. Bye now. Bye bye.